0: Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 today, and that can be found uh, in the black Bibles under the chairs. It'll be on page 879, 878, 879. We're continuing our series called "Meet Jesus," where we are looking at snapshots of Jesus from the Book of Luke and the Book of Acts, which also written by Luke, uh, and we're trying to reassess. So, who who is Jesus really? There's a lot of kind of weird thinking we fall into, maybe some random thing you heard in Sunday school as a kid, or maybe some myth you saw on the History Channel, Uh, and we want to come back to the original sources and say, okay, who really is Jesus? What does he have to say about himself? And so we've been examining Jesus, renewing our minds, trying to understand what the scriptures say about him. This week is the uh, church kind of calendar that most people observe across different denominations, is the week preparing for Easter. And so we're kind of going back and lining ourselves up with history. This Sunday, the Sunday, Jesus comes into, uh, comes into Jerusalem for his final week. We often call it Palm Sunday because of the triumphal entry, he rides in on a donkey and people are laying down palms and waving palms and praising him as the Messiah that's come to save him. Um, but that week, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were not praising him. The conflict intensifies and he's killed at the end of the week and he rises from the grave the next Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection on Easter. So this week, we're calling it Meet King Jesus. We're going to be focusing in on the uh, sayings and the interactions of Jesus immediately following his triumphal entry. Uh, So I'm going to read some of the verses right after the triumphal entry section, uh, trying to kind of follow the way Luke tells the story, because Luke, out of the four Gospels, gives the smallest details, uh, the smallest telling of the story of the triumphal entry. So I want to emphasize what Luke emphasizes, which is the stuff that happens right after that. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 19, verse 28. Chapter 19, no, sorry, verse 41. Chapter 19, verse 41. I really need to start wearing reading glasses when I'm preaching. Okay, verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This word visitation can be translated as inspection. So the king has come to visit. Verse 45, and he had entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20, verse one says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? And stop there, we'll read more of this text as we move along, but let me pray for us uh, as we wrestle with Jesus' authority as king. Father, we thank you that you love us and you invite us into your presence. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning. We confess uh, a habit, a desire to be our own king's and so we pray that you would help us to bow the knee to you, the only truly good king. And Father, some of us have, have really no desire to ever bow to you. And I, I pray for those of us this morning that are committed to self, that you would, you would just kind of crack open the door of our mind and our hearts, that we would be open-minded. That we would consider you, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see who you really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we deal with Jesus as King, Jesus as boss, if you will, it reminded me of a TV show that I think a lot of you have probably seen called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen this TV show before? So anybody, raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, some of you have seen it. Um, Undercover Boss, really interesting show. The, The premise of the show is that the boss of a corporation or a business goes undercover in one of his branches where people don't necessarily recognize him and he tries to work a day in the life or a week in the life of the ordinary employee in this business. So a great way as a boss to find out what's really going on in your company. And usually it's kind of sappy and emotional, and he cries because he doesn't realize how hard the regular workers have it. You know, it's kind of this feel-good kind of show. Um, Saturday Night Live did a parody of that based on the Star Wars movie. I don't know if you saw this, but They took the new Star Wars movie, Kylo Ren, grandson of Darth Vader, who is this evil megalomaniac, and Kylo Ren dresses up like an ordinary radar technician, so he kind of looks like Napoleon Dynamite, Uh, and he says, hi, I'm Matt, I'm a radar technician, and he's asking everybody what they think about Kylo Ren, and isn't Kylo Ren awesome, and you want to see his lightsaber, and it's just, it's kind of hilarious. The whole premise is you've got a king, you've got a leader, you've got a boss who shows up and the ordinary folk don't recognize the leader. They don't recognize the boss, the ruler. Of course, when it's Kylo Ren, things go very badly. But in the, in the normal TV show, things usually go well. Um, how, how are they going to react to the kingship of Jesus? That's really what this text is about. The king, the boss, shows up to his business. God's business, starting in the Old Testament, was to set up a place where his name would be broadcasted to all the nations. You read the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms continually says, "Come on, nations! Come on in, and praise the Lord. See how good God is. Recognize Him in these pictures that we're painting through the sacrificial system. These pictures that show us that God is absolutely holy, and we're sinners. And we need a sacrifice. We need a." Savior. And so God again and again was painting this picture through the sacrificial system where his law was broadcast from Jerusalem, from the fortress, from Mount Zion, the the place where God was going to be declared to the nations. And so Jesus, God incarnate, shows up on the scene. The boss comes to inspect the business. And the question is, what's going to happen? We've already read some of the text. We know that the managers of the business don't want to give up the rights and their leadership to the real owner of the business. And so there's a conflict that ensues. The ordinary folk, they love him. They're praising him. But the leaders don't want to give up leadership. They want to keep managing the business their way. And so there's this challenge we see back and forth. Uh, what I want you to see as we uh, look at the idea of Jesus being king is this first idea is really amazing, This first idea is that King Jesus weeps for us. First idea that we see is that King Jesus weeps for us. So the setting, again, to back up and give you context, is the triumphal entry. So when the historic church calls this Sunday Palm Sunday, we're remembering that on this Sunday, people were waving palm branches, laying them down on the ground, fanning them at him, and this was a way of kind of rolling out the red carpet for the king. So disciples, followers of Jesus were saying, he's the king we've been waiting for. And he comes in triumphantly riding on a donkey, which shows that he is humble. He's not riding in on a war horse like the Roman kings would do. He's riding in on a donkey, which actually there was precedent in Old Testament history because King David would do it that way as well. So King David would also ride in a donkey. Jesus rides in a donkey. So this is the setting. He comes in basically saying, I am the king, I am the boss, right? He's being very purposeful about declaring now his kingship. He'd been more veiled in the past, right? You know, there are these times where Jesus would heal someone and he'd say, don't tell anybody, it's not my time yet. Well, now he's saying, it's my time, it's my time. So it's not so much an undercover boss, it's like day one, walking in Jerusalem, he unveils himself and he's like, I am I am the king, I am the boss. And what's the first thing that happens after that? First thing that happens is in verse 41. Look at verse 41 again. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. King Jesus weeps for us. He's definitely the king. He's in charge of the universe. He's the boss. He's the owner of everything, but he weeps for us. And I want you to understand first, before we move on to see some of the harder sayings of Jesus, that he is a God who has moved towards us in compassion. Again and again in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus felt compassion. And it's this very, uh, very stark idiom in the Greek that says his guts were moved. It's like he was just aching for us. He's moved towards us. He loves us. He has mercy on us. He has compassion on us. He weeps over us. And I think this beautiful beginning to these interaction interactions kind of softens our hearts so that we can handle a little more the, the confrontation that's gonna come here later. So the first thing we wanna know is that he's a God who weeps for us. He recognizes, he grieves over our, our suicidal obsession with self. I have a picture of people grieving at a funeral and we grieve at a funeral uh, because we've lost someone we love. There's loss. It's appropriate to cry. Those of you that are Anglo and never cry at funerals. You should cry, it's appropriate, okay? It's appropriate to grieve. It's right and good. Christians are called to grieve differently. We're called to grieve and celebrate the hope that we have of resurrection life in Christ. But we're still to grieve. There's still loss there. And, and Jesus grieves over us. One of the shortest verses in the Bible is in the Gospel of John, and it says, Jesus wept. His best friend Lazarus was dead and rotting in the grave, and Jesus wept. We have this idea of grief. God looks at us in a rebellion. Our Our little kingdoms we're trying to set up, our empires of dirt, and we're trying to say, I can do it on my own, and we're killing ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. Jesus weeps over our sin and our rebellion. And so the first thing that I I would say as a sinner and a repenter is the sin is never worth it. It's never worth it. I've never sinned, and then the next day said, man, I'm really glad I did that. You know? It's just, it's never worth it. And Jesus affirms that, and he, he weeps over our rebellion. He, he weeps over our sin. He grieves. And this is not just like, like how I cry. I have like a minor eye leak when I cry. You know, if there's like this drip, 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 real slow. Um, this is a word for, for like wailing, grieving, crying out. This is serious grief. Jesus is genuinely and dramatically moved by a rebellion because it means our destruction. And so I just want you to hear that up front. We're going to hear harder stuff, but I want you to hear this because I think this softens our heart that the God of the universe comes after us in our sin. He chases after, he's moved towards us. He he loves us. God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. And we see this lived out in the life of his son who is the king, but he's the king who grieves over us. He says, would that you even... You had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. says they will tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. He's talking about the city. He's talking about the fortress. He's talking about the institution, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the people of God, what they've set up, their temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It's this beautiful place set up to declare God's majesty and God's mercy, and he's saying it's going to be torn down. They're, they're destroying themselves. They're tearing themselves apart. He goes on and says, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, that word visitation uh, is not an informal visit. It's an official visitation. It could be translated inspection. The king is visiting. It's an inspection and you didn't recognize it you didn't recognize the authority of the king and because of that Jesus weeps over his people so the the first the first idea here is the destruction of Jerusalem itself this happened in AD 70 it was a part of history it had been predicted by Jesus many times and so Jerusalem was judged but i think this also shows uh, a connection that happens throughout the scriptures that we are judged when we don't submit to God's authority. And again, God weeps over that. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God grieves over our sin. He mourns over our rebellion. Jesus weeps over us. And so we need to recognize that there will be a day that will come when there's no more time for repenting. For these Jewish leaders, that that day came in AD 70, right? He's talking about a specific thing here, an institution, but he's speaking to a greater idea, and some of the parables we've seen so far in Luke speak to the same idea, that there will be a day when the king locks the door, and we can't repent. The, The time is over for repenting. And so he's challenging us. He's weeping for us. He's telling us to not to be perfect and save ourselves, not to just no longer sin, But to recognize we are sinners, and we need the king to take care of our sin. We need the perfect sacrifice of Jesus to wash away our sins, to repent and turn towards him. My question for you is, is that your attitude towards your own sin? And is that your attitude towards others' sin? Do you you grieve over sin the way Jesus does? Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 has a verse uh, way far down in it, verse 136, where it says, my eyes shed tears, shed streams of tears because people do not obey your law. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears. I am gushing, I'm wailing, I'm grieving, I'm weeping because people don't obey your law. Is that our attitude? Or do we think, oh, those are terrible people. They deserve their judgment. I'm glad I'm not a sinner like them. That's the passage we saw last week, right? I heard, heard Stevens preaching on that. He did a fantastic job. We should not be the kind that just beat our chest and say, I'm righteous, and those, those people are not. But we should grieve over our sin. We should grieve over other people's sin as well. My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't obey your law. Jesus, Jesus grieves. Jesus cries over our sin and our rebellion, for one, because we're killing ourselves. As I said, it's, it's suicidal. It's a slow suicide. Day by day, hurting ourselves. Jesus also grieves because we're dishonoring God and his glory. God is most glorified, as John Piper likes to say, when we are most satisfied in him. God's most glorified and magnified when we are actually finding delight and pleasure in God and his goodness. Well, the, the picture continues. Uh, To take shape here. King Jesus weeps for us. King Jesus also commands. King Jesus is a king. King Jesus has authority. He commands us. He tells us what to do. And we see this uh, dramatically in two different little interchanges here. If you look at verse 45, we're told that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." He's quoting from Isaiah 56 here, that um, you have taken what was supposed to be a place where God's name was proclaimed and the nations were invited in. There's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, we're told in other passages. This was for the nations, for the outsiders to come in and connect with God. And what did they do? They put up barriers. They made it harder for people to connect. He says in other places, it's like a, a play, like a marketplace, right? Like a A place of merchandising. Here he's saying you've made it a den of robbers. There's there's different lenses you get from the different uh, tellings of the story. Um, What we seem to understand from the Gospel of John is that Jesus actually does this twice. Seems from the Gospel of John that Jesus does this at the beginning of his ministry, and then the other Gospels pick him up doing this again at the end of his ministry, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. So there's this idea that Jesus takes authority, he commands, and says this is what the temple is supposed to be like. You're not making the temple what it's supposed to be. I'm, in, I'm inspecting the business, and you're not showing people my grace and my mercy. So he's turning over the tables. Now, commentators like to debate about the details of this because there's some kind of common sense, uh, possibly good things that are happening, right? Um, in the Old Testament law, there's provision for people bringing money to the temple if they can't make it with their animal sacrifices. So bringing money and then buying an animal once they get there, so there is there is some allowance for this kind of thing, and so we don't want to get lost in the technicalities of you know was that right or wrong or should they have been five feet farther out of the temple? You know, I don't think that's the main idea. the The point is, they didn't give a rip about people, and they weren't allowing God's temple to be a place of prayer for all the nations. That that's the point. We don't want to get lost in the details and you know law legal wrangling here. You want to say Jesus is in charge, Jesus is the boss. And the boss says, you're not allowing my house to be a house of prayer. And he turns over the tables. He makes a whip. It says it in other gospels. It doesn't tell us it in this one. But the other story is it says he makes a whip. So I was reminded of a hero from the 80s. From the 80s, and I guess he's still alive, right? But Indiana Jones with the whip, um, you know, action adventure hero in the 80s. You'd never seen that before, right? Heroes always had swords or guns, and all of a sudden this dude has a whip. Well, Jesus, uh, in the same way, it's hard to Google an image of Jesus with a whip. Most of the time you find Jesus with like pretty long blonde hair and a sheep in his hands, you know. Um, Jesus was a tough guy. Jesus was a manly man. Um, the, the word we usually translate carpenter most likely meant stone cutter, right? Like, like Jesus was a mason with big hands. He was somebody you wouldn't have wanted to mess with. And he comes in and he turns the tables over. We're told in the other gospels he makes a whip, and he's whipping and pushing and kicking people out of the temple. So here we're getting this picture of Jesus that we don't always get, right? I started with the picture of his compassion for us and that is true. Jesus is compassionate for us. He loves us. He grieves over our sin and rebellion, but he's also tough and he's not gonna tolerate the abuse of the system that he had set up. He goes on here. If you go on in verse uh, chapter 20, verse one, we get another episode talking about his command, his control. In verse one of chapter 20, it says one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, literally the, the good news, he's preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So this is one of the ways we try to skirt God's leadership in our life, is we question his authority on technicalities. You ever do that? Like, God, I'd love to obey you, but I'm not sure if we can really trust the the original sources. Or, God, I'd I'd love to obey you, but I have these questions about theodicy and how can evil exist in the world. So we have these technical questions that make us question whether we can really trust his command and control and leadership. What's really fascinating is that Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. Now, just as an aside, I'm a, I'm a questioner, right? Like I'm, I ask these questions regularly and I, I just want to tell you, it's not wrong to ask questions. Just don't ask those questions as an excuse to not obey Jesus. You see the difference? There's kind of like two different ways we ask our questions. One way we ask our question is, I want to know the answer. Another way we ask the question is, I'm smart enough to come up with a way to not have to obey Jesus. And it sounds like a question, right? And, and I've, played, I've played both sides of that game. And so I can just tell you, if you have genuine intellectual curiosity, God can handle your questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. But here, the Pharisees are not doing that. Here, the Pharisees are, are blowing smoke. He says here, They said to him, Who gave you this authority? This is how he answers them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So he doesn't answer their question like, This is where my authority came from. I got my badge at rabbi school down the street. He just says, I'll ask you a question. Where did John get his authority? From heaven or from man? And they conferred among themselves, verse five, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? Verse six, but if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they're in a bind here, right? Verse seven, so they answered and that they did not know where it came from. They're like, we, we don't know. We're not, we're not sure. We We can't. We can't make a decision about this John the Baptist thing. We don't really know yet. We'll have to confer. We'll have to you know, put some committees together. We'll do, do more research. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So when someone's really in authority, they don't have to convince you of their authority. They don't have to beg you to recognize their authority. They just, they are. They just, they're in charge. Do you believe that Jesus gets to tell you what to do? Do you believe that Jesus gets to tell you what to do? If you're a modern American and you've bought completely into our worldview as we see the world, this kind of postmodern mix of modern skepticism and postmodern mishmash gravy, I can do whatever I want, right? Like we've kind of blended these two worldviews together, and what comes out is I'm in charge. That works out pretty well, doesn't it? Like, we all just get to say, I'm in charge. No one can tell me what to do. But Jesus here is saying, no, no, I'm in charge. There is an authority in the universe, and it's not you. There's an authority in the universe. There is a king who commands. But when I was a young father, my wife helped me recognize that sometimes I was not directive enough with my language. I don't know if y'all are like this, I'm just a very non-directive person, you know, I'm always kind of like, well, what do you think about maybe kind of doing this, you know, and it doesn't really work with little kids. Do you want to clean your room? Four-year-old's like, no. <laughs> of course not, but thanks for asking, Dad. <laughs> um, do you you want to put your dishes away now? You know, like nodding helps? No, they're, if you ask, they're just going to say no. So I had to learn as a, as a father to make commands, not always ask questions. Jesus is not making suggestions to us, folks. He's not asking for your input, I'm sorry to say. And again, just know that's hard for me to say because that's that's how I want to lead, right? I want to lead by saying, well, what do you think? Do you like this idea? How does this seem to you? And Jesus doesn't approach us that way. Jesus commands. Jesus leads. And we get to either be rebels or servants, now, don't get me wrong. When we're in the servant category, we mess it up all the time. That's why we have this whole thing called the cross. Jesus paid for our sins. So those of us that attempt to serve Jesus, none of us are perfect. Nobody serves Jesus perfectly. But he is setting up a choice here. There's a choice between serving and obeying or rebelling and doing your own thing. Jesus commands. He does not make suggestions. My, my question for you as you wrestle with this is, what are the things that Jesus is commanding you to do? Matt Chandler said one time that one of the problems we have in the Bible belt is that God commands us to do something and we kind of try to negotiate with him, right? Like Jesus is telling you to stop some area of immorality in your life and you say, well, what if I join the choir or if I go to church more often or I start reading my Bible, how about that? Instead of obeying what you're commanding me. And that never, that never works out. That's not going to end well. Jesus commands us. It's our job to listen. He, he has the authority. He gets to tell us what's right and what's wrong. It's not our emotions. It's not our feelings. It's not even our common sense. Jesus gets to command us. He gives us his word. And he says, this is, this is what I want you to do. We don't get to be the final arbiter of truth. We don't get to be the commander. Jesus is the commander. The the last thing that Jesus reveals is that he's the cornerstone. He is this cornerstone, and a cornerstone is like uh, a two-sided thing, right? He, He says basically a cornerstone is this thing that can handle any weight. It's what makes a building strong, but it's also big and heavy, and if you get underneath it, it'll crush you. And so depending on your attitude, your uh, demeanor, your posture towards Jesus, uh, he either is a joy or he is judgment. And that's what he tells us in this last parable. So listen to this last parable, chapter 20, verse 9. He says, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. May it never be. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from Psalm one. 18. He's declaring that he is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He's this stone that can either crush someone or give someone life. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is declaring his authority. He's declaring his kingship. He's declaring that, that he's the crux and that we have a decision to make. I have a picture of some of the stones of the ancient temple of Jerusalem. These are stones that are still existing. As I said, in AD 70, the temple was torn down, but there's still some remnants of the fortress city uh, of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. These stones are are huge. I hope you can see they're quite a bit larger than the human body, and these are just wall stones. The corner stone, these foundation stones that would have been laid at a corner, could support the weight of two walls like this coming together at a corner. So they were huge. They were massive stones, much larger than these wall stones. A cornerstone is something uh, that brings delight. When it holds everything together, it makes a good foundation. And it's also something to be feared because it's strong and immovable and it can crush us. And Jesus says, these are the two ways we can view him. We can either see him with delight or we can see him as something, someone to be feared. And this is hard language, it's not popular uh language in our day and time, but it's the biblical language of how Jesus revealed himself. You can't take the third option option of him just being like neutral, you know well, take it or leave it. I'm not sure what to do about jesus well, he says no you need to need to make a decision make make a decision how you're going to see jesus the immediate immediate application of this passage is the fact that the broadcasting ministry of telling the world who God was was being stripped out of the hands of these Jewish leaders. So the question is, what's the warning to us today? As a church, we believe our call, our commission is very much the same as the Old Testament people of God and in the general principles of we are commissioned to declare to the world who God is, to declare his holiness and majesty and also to declare his Kindness and mercy through Christ. So we have much in common with the Old Testament people of God, with Jerusalem, the city of God. We're not exactly the same, but we have the same kind of commission. And the question is, are we going to do our job? Are we going to declare to the world who he is? Or will we have it stripped away? There's this threat to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation where Jesus says, if you don't repent, your lampstand will be removed. So I believe this is always a danger to any group of people that says they will speak for God. Any group of people that says, we're going to tell the world who God is. Well, we can start saying, we're God. And if you join us, we'll save you. And if you do things our way, you'll be okay. And I believe if you begin to do that, then your lampstand will be removed. Then the cornerstone will crush you. They missed Jesus by defending their political power, by holding on to their leadership instead of submitting to the real boss, to the real king. They defended their party. A lot of crazy politics going on uh, right now. And I'd encourage you to remember that No matter what goes on in in the world of worldly power and political parties, Jesus is king. Whether your party wins or loses, Jesus is king. Whether your tribe is succeeding or failing, Jesus is king. Whether your family is doing well this year or doing poorly, Jesus is king. And you take encouragement that your tribe, that your party your denomination, that your club, your team cannot save you. But Jesus can. Jesus gives us his words in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Whoever hears my words, whoever obeys my words, whoever pays attention to my words and puts them into practice is building their life on a solid foundation. If we listen to Jesus, we can build our life on the cornerstone of who he is. And if we reject Jesus' words, he tells us we're crushed, we're crushed. Well, as we wrap up thinking about King Jesus' leadership in our life, I want to take us back to this idea of idolatry that we, we speak about often. What is it that has become the king in your life? Jaron Barr is my, my mentor who uh, I've been reading a lot of his material as we've been going through the series in Luke. He said this, Idolatry leaves us with a sense of power and control that is its primary attraction: choosing something I feel in control of rather than being controlled by God. So my, my question for you and for me is, what are the things that, that we believe give us control and allow us to, to hang on to the ability to be king of our own life? But what are those things in our life where we say, "If I have this, I don't have to bow to King Jesus. I can save." myself. I can be king. I can hold on to control. And I would I would warn you that those things will eventually crush you. That only Jesus is the good king. This whole story is now accelerating to what's going to happen in history in the next few days after this happened. There's going to be a final confrontation with the religious leaders and they're going to kill him. Yet in his death he he bears the wrath of God, he takes the sins Of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so although there's there's warning that if we don't obey Jesus, we will be crushed. There's also this invitation to the God that that weeps for you, the God that grieves over your sin, the God that's moved towards you in compassion, the God who loved us so much that He sent His only Son. If you trust in Him instead of trusting in your own kingdom, you'll have eternal life. You won't perish. You'll find the salvation that we need. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship. God, we pray that you would teach us to recognize our own false kingdoms, our own empires of dirt that we set up against you. I pray that you would humble us you'd help us to recognize how good you are and how kind you are to us in Jesus who died for us, who took our sins upon himself and who gives us his righteousness. Thank you that we can be in your family. We pray that you would change us, that you would make us new, that you would help us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.